something funny about conditions, isn't there? When you start to try and organise them, they tend to show you that uh, you haven't got a hope. So uh, we'll just have to go with the flickering, it seems. And maybe it's a useful metaphor. Sometimes there's a, a way in which our normal perception starts to shift a little. We start to notice other possibilities and sometimes there's a a way in which those possibilities first reveal themselves and in a sense of something not quite able to be ignored and yet not quite able to be for us to put our finger on what's happening. And so this is really the question of our life, of our retreat perhaps. What is it that we're looking for? That in the depths of our heart we're drawn towards discovering. And what is asked of us or in what way perhaps are we invited to reorient our engagement with life with experience, with this very moment in order to facilitate the discovery, the recovery and the awakening into our life and the truth of the Dharma which it reveals. This endeavour that we all share, that we may call seeking happiness, peace, freedom. In the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma teachings, it's understood that the basic factor that limits our capacity to discover that which we seek for that which we long for in our hearts, the basic factor is blindness. Avidya is the word the Buddha used. And the root, in fact, vid, is the same as the word, the root of the word we use for video and for vision. It's to do with seeing, and A is a, negates the whatever other part that other one is. I'm not so good on grammar, but not seeing. Avidya. Avidya. Sometimes translated as ignorance, which I think is unfortunately pejorative. It's blindness, as Leela was saying last night. Blindness, where we can't see. And so, recognizing it as blindness, it's important we don't judge it. And yet, recognizing it as blindness, it's important we investigate it. We look carefully, deeply into what is this condition that we experience. Avidya is not seeing the way things are, not seeing the truth of life, of our life, of all of life. And when we don't see how things are, we live our life out of sync, out of harmony with that truth, and accordingly experience life all too often as a series of collisions or something that doesn't quite fit or something in which we imagine that we don't quite fit. And really, that's not how it is, though it can be sometimes how it appears. So this not seeing clearly and truly the nature of life leads us to a sense of dissatisfaction, of frustration, of a longing for, a seeking for. And the tendency... Unconscious and often unquestioned is that we're looking for, we're seeking for something other. Something that's to be found in some other place or time or circumstance. And becoming some other person or in creating some other world. And our looking is intent, intense, ongoing. And yet, 
If it's not bearing fruit, we maybe need to question how we're looking. There's a a delightful story of Mullah Nasruddin in the uh, the teaching figure who uh, Leela introduced us to already, both a wise man and a fool. And one day Nasruddin is in the evening, in fact, not the daytime, in the evening outside on the street outside his home, on his hands and knees, looking through the rubbish and the rubble on the street under a street lamp. And he's there quite intently searching. And a friend comes along and says, Ah, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? Nazruddin replies, he says, I've lost the key to my house. I can't get in. I've lost it. Can you help me look for it? And so the friend gets down on his hands and knees and they're looking through the stones and it's dirty and there's various unsavory items of organic matter. And it's kind of and really examining the area carefully, but there's no sign of the key. And after a while, the friend looks up at Nazruddin and he says, Mullah, Mullah, we've searched this area really carefully for your key. Are you sure you lost it here? Mullah Nazruddin looked up at him. He said, oh no, I lost it in the back garden, but the light's much better here. (laughs) And it's like we kind of have the sense we should be looking where it's obvious to look, where we can see most clearly. In what we're most used to exploring, in the way we're most used to looking. And yet if we're not finding what we're looking for there, perhaps we're looking in the wrong place. The key, of course, is a metaphor. The key to our home. We're looking for the key to our true home. The place of abiding. The abode of the heart. Of course we're looking for this, all of us, one way or another. And in that looking there's a sense of, of a restlessness, of a sense of unease, of an ongoing drivenness that runs as a current through life, through an unexamined life and indeed through a, a well-examined life. And that sense of something needed, something missing, something lost creates a pressure and an urgency and an ongoing sense of of looking, of looking, of looking. We might feel that sense in us at times. And sometimes with some enthusiastic, some appreciative receiving of something that we were looking for and yet the looking goes on, the looking goes on, it seems. And it's not just us, but it's the whole movement and energy of life. There's this kind of drivenness to it. And we're looking, we're looking, though we're not always sure what we're looking for. But we know that we're looking. (coughs) Some years ago, my wife Catherine and I were staying at a friend's house for a few months while they were away. We didn't have our own home at the time and just uh, moving between places. And while I was washing the dishes... At his friend's place, the phone rang, so I went to pick up the phone. And talking to the person on the phone, I can't remember who it was at the time, I just started to reach down and touch my ring, my wedding ring on my finger, as I would sometimes do. We hadn't been that long married at that time, and it was still kind of a strange thing to have this sort of piece of sort of cool metal attached to my finger. But as I reached down for the for the ring, as I was talking on the phone to my friend, I realized it wasn't there on my finger. And I was immediately concerned, but not too concerned. I said, Catherine, don't tip out the dishwater. And so I finished the conversation a bit more briefly with my friend on the phone and hung up and went and looked through the water in the dishes, thinking I must have lost it there, and it wasn't, it wasn't there. So we started looking around the house, and I said, Catherine, help me. Can you? And we were looking around, and all along there was this deep sense of angst and anxiety and concern, because, A, it, was, it wasn't an expensive ring, but we really I didn't want to have lost it because obviously it meant something to me, but it was also like money. <laughs> it wasn't just romantic, I have to confess. Uh, I'm not sure I've put that on a tape before, but anyway. Uh, but anyway, there was this really deep concern on me, in me. 
um, about it. Where, where has it gone? Where has it gone? And, and the thing was I could feel that soft, shiny skin underneath where it normally lived. And I was rubbing it with my finger going, you know, sort of. And then at some point Catherine looked at me and she said, it's the other hand. <laughs> and I was going, it's missing, it's missing, it's gone. This is a true story. I'm embarrassed to say. And it's like, it's gone. And of course, when I looked at her, I was, oh no, there isn't any shiny skin on this finger. This is an ordinary one. But it felt like it. And I'm so busy looking and feeling that, in fact, from this posture, really interestingly, I cannot see my wedding ring. Because this hand obscures it and I'm looking at this. It was never lost. But we spent quite a lot of time looking before we realized that. (coughs) It's the same when we look away from where we are. When we look towards something else, towards becoming someone else, towards arriving somewhere else. When we look away. In the very looking away, we lose contact. We lose the possibility, the immediate, accessible opportunity to see what's right here, perhaps right in front of us. Looking away. And yet looking away, it's hard not to do it, isn't it? Because there's all this life going on around us and life going on inside us and all this activity seems to be always going somewhere. And it's really hard not to go with it and follow it and wonder, where is it going? It must be going somewhere. There's a lot of energy going into it if it's not going somewhere, so maybe that's where I need to go. Maybe that's what I need to follow. There's a fascination we naturally and understandably experience with all of this movement in time of things flowing, unfolding, the dynamic, vibrant, at times beautiful and wonderful manifestation of life. And of course it's worthy of our care and our attention and there's beauty and there's delight and there's richness and connection in all of that, yes. And when the looking into it and looking towards it is asking it for more than that, it can't offer that. It can't offer more than just what it is. There's there's this sort of hope we have for something more or different or better than just this condition that we find ourselves in. And there's this movement of trying to become, trying to get, trying to arrive. It's relentless, isn't it? Do you recognize it when I describe it? What that's like? You know? Yeah, we know it, don't we? We know it so well. We invest so much hope in it. But that movement, that whole movement is fascinating. It's entrancing. And yet it somehow fools us. It has a magical quality to it. In our interest in it, our entrancement with it, we become somewhat enchanted. Not just in the enchanted, oh, enchanted to meet you, but the enchanted, like we almost fall under a spell. We start to believe that this is all there is here. Because it's what catches our eye. Because it's what's moving. It's what's touching or contacting us. And in the contact, the touch, the resonance, there's sweetness. There can be delight when we're open and we're sensitive and there's a way in which we start to wash the senses clean here. There's a a way in which a, a real genuine purification takes place. An opening. And so that contact, that touch becomes even sweeter. And yet, as that touch becomes sweeter, as we start to receive the nourishment and the contact with life and really allow it in, allow our heart to resonate with it, important and beautiful as that is, part of what that offers us is that we we can perhaps start not having to grasp hold of or pursue the movement. 
we can see that just what's here maybe is enough. And in seeing that, stop fixating on the movement. Stop following the directions, the tangents, the trajectories of our thoughts, of our feelings, which are always going somewhere, it seems, of experiences around us, of light and sound and people and beings. Because it's not just movement. We see experience as movement, sight and sound and smell and taste and touch and thought and feeling. And all these we can see and understand as movement. It's flowing, it's rippling, it's pouring in unstoppably, it seems. And we've seen that if we try and stop it, it doesn't work. Life keeps pouring in, pouring in, it seems. If we try and stop it, it's like trying to stand in a river and say, stop the river. It doesn't work. If we try and grab hold of it, it's like trying to grab hold of a rope that's being pulled so powerfully that if we grab it, we get rope burn and our hands lose this very skin that's trying to hold on. That's suffering. Suffering is when we grasp hold of life. Life is moving. And we can't hold it so tightly it won't move. If we squeeze it, the sensitive place in which we're contacting it gets raw and painful. And we have to let go. Ah, ouch, that hurt. So we learn to hold it more gently. We don't grab it. It's more like this. But that holding is also an allowing, a putting it down, a letting it go. Not in a letting it go of pushing it away, but letting our focus become a little softer. Less preoccupied with particulars, with specifics, with details. Details are what we need for survival mechanisms to operate. We've touched on the importance of that, and it has its value. But it also, or they, details, and the fascination with them, also have their limitations. So if we look at what's actually happening, if we start to reflect on it and contemplate, well, what's going on here? This, this that's happening now, that's been happening pretty much like this forever, in terms of our own existence. It's been happening pretty much like this. Sight and sound and smell and taste and touch has been here, going on. Is that all that's been happening? Because as we slow and become more sensitive, it's like the very experiences that turn or appear initially as discrete or particular events happening in some apparently linear sequence, that we start to notice that there's something more going on than just that. And at first we might not quite really know what or can't quite see or quite get hold of what it is that's more than that, but we just sense there's something more to this. There's something more to this even if we couldn't really say or explain to someone what that was. And it's like we start to sense when we hear a sound that the silence out of which it comes is somehow of the same nature as the sound. And that the sound is like silence that's just taken form and shape. But the sound hasn't left the silence. It hasn't even interfered or broken the silence. It's simply expressed the silence with shape and form. And similarly, when we see a thought arising in the mind and we start to notice the space between one thought and another, somehow it changes our relationship to the thought. We see that thought is made of space. Thoughts have spaces between them. Thoughts have space in them. And something about seeing the space, sort of like almost like recognizing the connective tissue, rather than making it more solid, starts to make it feel less solid, less compelling, less powerful. It's like there's, there's more here than just what seemed to stand out. And as we see that, that which stands out starts to almost recede back. Like it stops kind of coming towards us because we've stopped going towards it in the habitual, unconscious and often unquestioned way we usually do. That we're more just still. And there is this. 
And it comes and we see it. We're not going towards it. And it therefore doesn't have the impression of coming towards us and therefore engaging us. It's more, ah, it's this. It's this. And there's the sense we can start to notice that the movement, the expression, the manifestation of life is in relationship to the stillness, the potentiality, the unmanifest or the not yet manifest. Though we don't quite know what that might be or how that might be. And yet it's just the sense that there's more than what we can get a hold of. So it's like there's two dimensions to the experience of this conscious being, existence, awareness, life, in contact with everything happening that we're exploring here. And we could say that we're here to understand both those dimensions fully. So we may notice that the tendency is to give attention to that which seems to stand out or come into the foreground. As I said, that happens in relationship to the way we move towards it and then it appears to come out. Have you noticed that when you give attention to something, it stands out? Have you noticed that when you pay attention to a sensation in your body, suddenly it becomes more clear or more strong? Not always. Or a thought, when you really focus on it, suddenly, whoa, it's sort of it's that, that sense of something comes towards us as we go towards that. And yet when we stay still, it's not like that. So just as an example, a couple of sort of examples of how this works may help give a, a clearer sense of it. So if we look up at a clear night sky, as we may have had opportunity to do here or maybe recently, what we th- what we tend to see or think we're looking at, when we look up at the clear night sky, it's like all these spots of light. And it's like, wow, would you look at those glimmering jewels in the heavens? Or however we might see, or it might be, you know, stars. But anyway, for me, it's more like, wow, look at those. How wonderful, how amazing. And we start to construct them into configurations. And, you know, there's the Big Dipper and the, there's Orion and... Orion looks um, very strange where I come from because uh, he's upside down. Uh, it took me a long time to figure out why he was called a, a, a swords person until a friend from this end of the world said, hey, Orion's upside down. And then I figured out where he was. Because in New Zealand, it's the other way around. And all the shapes that make sense here don't actually make sense there. But you see how we put, not just we see these points of light, we see that, then we make shapes out of them. It's just such a strong, the sort of established habit to kind of organize them into forms. And then we see these things up there, creatures, beings, useful utensils called you know pots and all that. That's what happens, isn't it? It's kind of ordinary. Who would think to comment on that? But you know, when we look up there, probably... For all the fact that it's entirely true, as Leela was saying last night, that you look into the empty space of a dark area with a telescope or a good one and you see lots more spots of light. Despite that truth, the fact is that 99% of what's out there is just inky black emptiness. But when we look up at the sky, that's not what we see. We see the little bits in it that seem to be different that stand out to us. And they always come towards us as they flicker. And as we think, ah, twinkle, twinkle, little star. But we can only see those stars because there's that deep, inky, empty blackness up there in which they're hanging. And if it wasn't there, we couldn't see them and they wouldn't be there. Our habit of perception is not to really orient or relate to that particularly. It's the foreground that gets attention. We don't notice the background unless we learn to start to look differently. And that's part of what we're doing here. 
So another example of this, which is uh, kind of interesting, is how, you know, when we look up in the sky, we see clouds moving through it. We often don't see the fact that that appearance of movement of clouds is against a backdrop of just stillness, of expansiveness, of openness. We see the sun moving through the sky, but we don't really necessarily see just the fact of what's there in which it's moving. We don't really connect to that so much in our normal mode. We may sometimes be touched by it. And, you know, going to a movie, for me, this is the classic expression of this. Going to a movie, I'm sure you've all done it. What happens, really, if we name it in bare actual reality terms? Not esoteric reality, just simple, you know, physical reality terms. What's happening? We go into a quiet room. It's quite dark. It's quiet. There's a big white screen at the front. And onto that screen, some light is projected. Different colours. And at the same time, there's some little machines for making waves in the air. Yeah. Now what happens is, we look at those colours on this white screen. And we see, oh, these are the colours that we like. Yeah, they're the good colours. And there's the colours over there. They're bad colours. We don't like them. And the good colours are trying to sort of escape from the bad colours. The bad colours are out to get them. And all the time there's these vibrations in our ear that make us go and feel like we know what's going on here. It kind of explains it all basically, doesn't it? And we see, you know, at times we're getting quite concerned because the the bad colours are just about going to get the good colours. But then finally, fortunately, you know, it works out okay and, you know, the good colours manage to vanquish the bad colours, meet some other quite cute-looking good colours and, you know, go off into some rather bright colours. And we have this deeply emotional felt experience. But what's actually happening is that all these colours are being projected onto a screen which reflects them back to us. And we can only see them because the screen is there. If the screen wasn't there, we wouldn't stay in that theatre very long. If someone was to turn the lights on and reveal to us there was a big screen there, we wouldn't pay money to go to the movies because we wouldn't be engaged. If we could see the screen, and they very cunningly make sure we don't while they're showing the movie because there's curtains and other things, if we could see the screen and realise there was a bunch of colours moving around on a flat surface, it would not be compelling or interesting. And so it's organised so that we can't see the screen. And yet, the fact that this light is bouncing back into our eyes tells us with absolute certainty there's got to be something there called a screen from which it's bouncing back. It couldn't happen otherwise. Light just goes ping. It doesn't come back unless it hits something. And yet we can't see the thing that it's hitting. Movies are attractive and a good business proposition. We buy them, we watch them, we enjoy them because it replicates something that happens inside, not just our fantasy life, which it also replicates, or our not quite such enjoyable inner life that it might also replicate. There's some way in which it replicates the fundamental dynamic that's taking place. And so we start to see this this thing that we're registering a dimension or an element of experience, but maybe there's more here. We start to question that perhaps. It's like we have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and this body, this tactile sensory organ we call the body, these five senses, and we have the mind which registers thoughts, and we register smell, sounds, sight, taste, touch with those other five organs. And the mind we call also an organ in the sense of it registers thoughts. And those thoughts and smells and tastes and touch and sounds and body sensations, they keep changing, they keep changing. We've noticed that, we've talked about it, we've explored it. And probably by now you've got a really reasonably clear sense that, yeah, that is what's going on much of the time. These things do not stay the same. But we can feel them, we notice them, we're touched by them.
and it appears and some people will swear blindly and be very convinced that that's all that's going on. <coughs> However, interestingly, some scientists in the realm of psychology got interested at some 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 university, I can't remember now, some quite some years ago, with the fact that, you know the phenomena when you're listening to something, if it stays constant, it seems to somehow fade away? We're all familiar with the experience of the fridge that goes off and stops making a noise, at which point we go, ah, we've noticed that it's disappeared, although we were completely unaware that it was going on. We weren't conscious of that at all. But unconsciously, we were obviously relating to it because we noticed its disappearance. Likewise, you've probably had the experience of walking into a room and it smells a little, you know, something. And if you stay there a little while, stop smelling it. These are ordinary experiences. We're probably all familiar with them. In fact, it turns out that with the senses, if it stays constant, the consciousness stops registering it, it seems. The consciousness stops registering a constant smell or a constant sound. It's part of how we acclimatize to things. They're normal. And we're sort of tuned to look for change. Change is where we see danger and also where we find what we're looking for that's not here, something different. So change is what those senses are tuned up. And, and the scientists were curious because they found this, this worked with, um, with body sensations. You know, you have sort of a pressure on your body for a while. Eventually you stop noticing it. Now, it's a little bit different if it's really extreme. But when it's really extreme, all sorts of other things start happening. But with moderate experience, this is true. If it stays constant, we stop noticing it. It works with tastes. You know, you start eating a bar of chocolate, you get a whole bar, and you're like, mmm. I remember doing this the first time I was probably about 15 and had enough money to buy a whole bar of chocolate for myself. And, you know, the first three, four, five, six squares are great, and then it's starting to feel a bit less exciting, but it's still good. By the end of it, it's like, this is disgusting. It doesn't taste good anymore. It's the same taste, but it's stopped being something interesting. It's like it's kind of gone dull and flat, and we're just left with the sticky gooiness. So, in fact, it seems it's pretty clear with smell, taste, touch, body sensations. What's the other one? Hearing. But, in fact, it didn't seem to happen. No one's reported it was not something in normal human experience to be looking around at something, or look at something for a while, and then suddenly stop seeing it with normal state of health and well-being. That's not what happens to us. So these scientists were investigating this, and they thought, oh, what's going on here? And then looking carefully what's happening, the eye is moving very rapidly like this all the time. It's moving like this. So the sense receptors at the back of the eyeball have an image hitting them that keeps moving like this. It's constantly moving. When we first see, when we're first looking at something, everything's blurry. We don't see things. We just see blurs to begin with. It takes a while for the mind to work out that although this image is shaking, the thing it's looking at isn't. We, we learn that. But if we get a bump on the head or we feel a bit sleepy, sometimes things get blurry again, fuzzy. Because the actual sensory information we're getting is suggesting blur, although we organize it with our mind into clear, sharp lines and divisions. So why am I saying all this? It doesn't appear that that phenomena happens with the eyes. And then seeing that the eye is moving... And in fact, it's not a constant impression being received. It's a constantly changing one. These scientists very craftily rigged up a contact lens with a little, um, I'm not quite sure what the technology involved was, but basically a little sensor in it that was attuned to the movement and linked up to a little projector that was projecting an image that was then set to move exactly with the eyeball. So as the eye moves, I don't know how many dozens of times a second, the image started to move. So everyone watching who didn't have this little contact lens on, would see an image that was moving. But the person wearing the contact lens saw an image that actually was moving while their eye moved and therefore projecting a, a constant image onto the sensory receptors in the retina. And after watching this image for a while, it just went boof and disappeared. And that's fascinating to me. It was fascinating to them, but it's fascinating to me in this context because what it says is, our sensory equipment cannot detect something that isn't changing. 
It cannot detect something that isn't changing. It just can't do that. And that has a profound significance for our spiritual exploration. As we explore and examine and come to see the ways that grasping onto these changing experiences lead to suffering, sense of dissatisfaction, frustration and exhaustion, we start to be able to put them down. We start to be less fascinated in the particularities. We start to leave some space for sensing, for resonating with the, how to say, deeper organ of our being that's really of a different order than the eyes and the ears and the nose and the mouth and the tongue and the body and equally a different organ than the the mind in terms of the mind that receives thoughts, that intellectual functioning, conceiving, verbal mind. Because as we relax, as we soften, as we allow ourselves to let the focus become not so sharp, not so hard, not so looking out, reaching towards and pulling in things and particulars from the world. So we allow that to soften, as we allow that to settle, we feel more the sense of stillness, the sense of just simple presence and being. We can perhaps start to somehow be touched by not just that which is changing, I was in my early years of practice at one time on retreat in a monastery in, in Budgaya, a place of the Buddha's enlightenment. And I'd been there the year before and really loved and enjoyed my, my time practicing, so I'd gone back. And quite a number of days into the retreat when it was really, it was probably about six or seven days in, so a similar time, was, things were really settling and calm and still I was really really feeling the, the sweetness of the practice. And one of the experiences there that was just standing out to me that I loved was the puppies. There was, in the monasteries in Asia, there, there's sort of like a sanctuary for all creatures, and many creatures end up in there, not just human beings. Certainly you find chickens and cats and the odd donkey, and puppies, dogs and puppies. And they have a hard life in India. It's not an easy world for them and certainly in the poorer regions but they would come to the monasteries and they'd sometimes find shelter there and these puppies were just so full of life and joy and fun and I'd be walking really mindfully and they'd be running flat out chasing each other and sometimes they'd run into your foot when it was just about to hit the ground and you know testing to see how well you were balancing or you know, if you put your plate there they'd come and just you know help you finish it off just in case you needed the help and I just my heart was just so full of appreciation and love and joy for these little beings and and it was like oh how lovely and then at some point it struck me that I thought they were the same <coughs> the same puppies that had been there last year and I'd just been thinking oh these puppies how lovely they are <coughs> you've probably spotted the floor a year later, they, went up, they wouldn't be puppies anymore. All the puppies had grown up, but there was this moment of, oh my gosh, these are not the same puppies. And yet, somehow, I'd been believing that they were. I'd somehow imagined that they were the same puppies. And how could that be? Because obviously I know that puppies a year later are you know, much bigger, very different. And so reflecting on this, it was like something like, oh yeah, okay, so the puppies change. But puppy nature is unchanging. The light, the joy, and at times, of course, the, the sorrow or the frustration, but mostly the light that I saw shining out of their eyes and the delight expressed in their activity, that was something that didn't seem bound to the puppies of the previous year. And that somehow seeing that, it's like seeing something that isn't changing here. Something that's shining through, that's animating, that's manifesting 
in the form of these little beings. Puppies change. But puppy nature is unchanging. What does that mean for us? What is it that doesn't change? If we're interested in this, we have to be willing to open ourselves to everything that comes in, to every experience, and yet take hold of not a single one for a moment. Reach towards or lean into or away from none of them. Because as soon as we do that, we're orienting towards that which is moving towards that which is changing. And in that orientation, we somehow lose the ability. It's like we somehow engage the organs that are designed to see things that change and move. And it seems we don't quite leave room and space for the, for the quiet sensitivity and resonance of the deeper heart the deeper wisdom, the deeper life within us to express its seeing. When we don't take what's coming towards us or moving away from us, whether around us or within us, when we don't take any of that as defining who and what we are or as defining how or what this world is and how it comes to be. If we don't define the totality as simply being all of the content of experience, we're open to the touch of life, of truth. Awareness is a verb, not a noun. This awareness is something happening. It's not a something to which anything is happening or by which anything is happening. It's just this. Presence is a verb, not a noun. It's not a something. And yet, somehow it can touch us. We can know it. It can soften and blur the hard edges that we tend to attribute to experience, to other, to self. Because somehow it fills the space in between everything that we might call me and you, or this and that, anything that we might conceive or perceive as separate from anything else, is somehow woven together. In that presence, awareness, life, that is, it seems unmoving and yet not still. Fluid and yet substantial. Imminent, present and right here. Closer than the very thoughts and the mind. more obvious and familiar than the very air we've been breathing every moment of our lives. And yet maybe not seen, not recognized, because we're looking through it. Not that we're literally looking through it, but that's sort of what we do. What is this that's here right now that our mind cannot grasp, that our senses cannot register, and that 
yet that our life, our being in its wholeness, when undivided, recognizes instantly and effortlessly and unshakably. To know this is to know that where we are, that this is not something that our efforts will bring us closer to. But equally, all those efforts will not take us any further away and cannot. Because that whole movement of looking turns out to be looking for itself. And when we see that, when we realize what this is, that whole movement of seeking, moving towards, realizes that itself is the expression of what was looked for. The seeker is what was being looked for. The seeker is the sort. And the very movement dissolves in on itself because it has nowhere to go and no need to go. The very movement, the appearance of it and the call towards it simply becomes dynamic life, energy, going nowhere and yet unstoppable in its fullness, its brightness, its life. So here we are. And if our mind can't quite get this or go there, invite it to take a break on this one, to have a holiday. It's not the job of the mind. But let yourself be wholehearted here. Leave nothing out. Pick nothing out of the everything. And see where that leaves you. T.S. Eliot said in the Four Quartets, We shall not seek from exploration. And the end of our exploring will to be a right to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Rumi put it like this. He said, I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. So let's come to rest right here. Nothing else to be done. Nowhere else to go. Just this.
So may we all, through our practice and in our lives, come to rest more deeply in the wide open truth of life. The imminence that is all and nothing. Boundless compassion and unbounded freedom. For our own liberation and for the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.